wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Your ratings and reviews wherever you listen to podcasts help others hear stories of light in the midst of darkness. Please follow Bleeding Daylight on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Find the links at bleedingdaylight.net. Today's guest has a hard yet hopeful story. I can't wait to introduce him to you. Hard times are a part of life, but Craig Olson seems to have faced more than his fair share of life's difficulties. As a college student with an amazing future stretching out before him, Craig's world was absolutely rocked. That was just the start of a long battle that led him to write the book, Defeating the Unbeatable. He's my guest on Bleeding Daylight today. Craig, thank you for your time. Awesome. Glad to be here. I'm super excited and looking forward to this. Your story of defeating the unbeatable began in 2009, but take me back before that and tell me what life looked like for you. Prior to 2009, I got married to uh, my high school sweetheart who we went to high school together. We were the cliche of all cliches, quarterback, cheerleader, prom queen and king. We moved to a small town in Washington for me to play some college baseball and after two years, we decided to get married as we were going to move to Fargo, North Dakota and be able to, what we thought, start a life together. I got to play Division One baseball, which was always my goal. And she wanted to be a construction engineer initially. And that was kind of the place to go. And we were excited about it and ventured off that direction. So life really did look good. You, you seem to be the couple that had it all together. Then what happened? And we did. Yeah, we felt the same way. We were thinking that life was just going to go in a very positive direction, all these big dreams and plans. After my first year of baseball, I kind of decided I had met my goal with that and kind of gave it up, which became a a blessing that we didn't even realize had taken place because uh, Super Bowl Sunday of 2009, uh, we were getting ready to go to a uh, friend's house to watch Super Bowl. And I heard a big old crash in the bathroom of our apartment and walked in to find my wife, Rachel having seizures. And it just completely turned our worlds upside down. And in the matter of a week, it went from her having some form of a spot on a MR or a CT scan to all sudden, Oh, this thing's the size of a tangerine to packing up disenrolling from college and moving out to Seattle, Washington, all within about a week and a half to two week period. Help me understand what was going through your mind when you first walked in and saw your wife having those seizures. What happened in your mind? I felt like the world had just completely crashed and I couldn't even imagine some of the stuff that was becoming a realistic time in my life. How she, when she fell, she bit her lip but the way she was laying, it looked like she had hit her head on the bathtub. However, looking back on it and realizing that she hadn't, it was like she had been placed down because it was a long, narrow bathroom that there was really no reason that her head did not hit the bathtub. So as that's happening, I'm somehow able to call 911. I don't know how I do. 
am frantically just trying, you know, yelling at her to stay with me, stay with me, not knowing any clue of what's going on. And then I had this realization that we lived in a uh, locked apartment complex that the doors lock from the inside. And if you don't have the special keys, you can't get in. I had to make a decision of, do I stay in this apartment building with Rachel in the apartment and hope that someone answers the door or to leave her to go and answer the door, which luckily for me, as I got out of our apartment and realizing I had to go, there was someone coming out of another apartment. I was able to send them to open the door. So I was able to get back to Rachel real quickly, but my mind went through what felt like years worth of processing in a matter of probably less than 10 minutes. Your wife is taken by ambulance. You head to the hospital. What are the, what's the process from there? You mentioned that there were scans done. Were they done immediately or was the process just to try and stabilize what was happening straight away? It was actually initially just to try and stabilize because on the way to the hospital, I had to drive separately. And so they sent me ahead to try and kind of get paperwork started on my end and have her go in the ambulance. And I found out as I was doing the paperwork and they had finally dropped her off was that she had two more of the grand mal seizures on the way to the hospital. If I remember right, she actually had another one as soon as she got the hospital. So they had to work on getting her stabilized long enough to then once they got her stabilized enough, they did a CT scan. And at that point, they told me that there was a spot, but they said the spot was the size of like your pinky fingernail, which later on we'd find out was actually the size of a tangerine. In early stages, you're thinking, oh, there's just a tiny spot there. This is something that can be overcome. When did it dawn on you both that this wasn't the case. When did they actually give you the news? Actually, it's bigger than we thought. They did a CT scan followed by they realized, yeah, this was something else. So they did a brain biopsy, which was like the next day after the biopsy, they came out and said, so here it looks like it's probably a grade two, maybe a low grade three brain tumor. You never want to hear brain tumor cancer, but for us, we knew because I went right to the internet as soon as I started hearing this stuff and researching that, you know, the lower the grade, the better chance of survival. And so hearing that, it was like, all right, we've got progress. It's small. There's all this new technology. It just so happened that myself and a couple of family members were able to go in and take a look at the MRI. When we did that, I had this absolute sucker punch of, this is not near as small as they were letting it out to be. I found out in that moment that it was the size of a tangerine. And I'm a very reserved person. I keep a lot of stuff to myself and the rock type personality for other people. And I snapped at that point and didn't want to listen to anything else the doctors were saying because I felt we were completely wasting time by the sheer size of that and not doing anything to the point where I walked out of the room where a doctor was trying to talk to us. So here you are, you're trying to cope with it the best way you can with the the skills that you had at that stage, which obviously just weren't enough. And, and mm. I guess for most of us, that that's the case when we hear a bad diagnosis. When did they give you a full diagnosis of exactly what was happening? So it was not actually until after her surgery, which was about a month after that, we were lucky that we were able to get in with a neurosurgeon in Seattle who is phenomenal, probably the best I 
bedside mannered doctor I've just about ever been around. So they did a sur- her surgery and ended up resecting what ended up being about a quarter of her brain. And they were then able to do a better diagnosis of the cancer because they kind of explained it to me as when you're going in to get these cancer cells, it's like grabbing grains of sand. You never know what you're going to get. You don't know if you're getting the whole thing. So them pulling that out and coming back to us and within about a week after her surgery, telling us that it's actually in fact a grade four glioblastoma, which is by far the worst you can have. I mean, I immediately went once again back to the internet and was getting told at most someone might survive 18 months. And so it was like just a complete another sucker punch to the body. And what was interesting though, and during this time when we're getting told this bad diagnosis, Rachel, obviously she was upset, but she kind of wiped her tears and just with this straight, like determined face said, let's get going. Let's start. Let's get after this. And it was kind of at that moment that looking back kind of led to the title of my book, Defeating the Unbeatable, as taking it head on and not letting it destroy her or the life she was going to be able to lead. So you're dealing with this at the moment. You're a long way from family because you, you've moved. What was your support structure around you at that time? Where we were in Fargo, North Dakota was nowhere near family. We're both originally from Montana Her mom lived in a small town called Moses Lake, which was about three hours from Seattle. I had some cousins that actually lived in the Seattle area. So we actually moved closer to some support system. However, it was very small. My mother-in-law at the time was always around and available for me. I had, like I said, my cousin that lived in the area. We spent months living with her and her family to kind of help be able to stay in the Seattle area. But it was definitely a different kind of core group of support. My family would get over from Montana as much as possible. We tried on weekends making trips to Montana as much as possible when Rachel wasn't having treatments. But it was one of those things where I realized later on that your support systems definitely ebb and flow depend on where you are in your current situation and walk for sure. At this stage, you've been given a diagnosis that Rachel perhaps has 18 months to live, but she's determined to fight it and you're fighting alongside her. How did things pan out from there? So once she, we were given the diagnosis, she had to go through a bunch of different physical therapies and vocal therapy to work on bringing back her conversation and being able to talk. She had to retrain her whole right side of her body because the tumor was in the left side. So being a very right-handed person, right-hand dominant and everything, it was a lot of learning for her. I think they said we could have two weeks up in the rehab floor. In a week, she was already to the point where they told her, you're doing better than we could have ever expected. We got no more for you. And we're actually able to send us home at that point. She would spend then about the next probably 16, 18 months to two years going through different forms of treatment. One form of treatment that we start out with was oral and it killed her blood counts to the point where they had to take her off of it. Then not long after that, her MRI came back showing that the tumor was growing back again. And we needed to be a little more proactive on trying to hopefully find something that would stabilize her. They started her over on a 
Infusion chemo along with another drug that were actually not only able to stabilize it, they actually did shrink it a little bit. It got to the point where about a year and a half after surgery, we were able to go back to college in a little town called Ellensburg, Washington at Central Washington University, where we both were actually able to graduate with teaching degrees. And it was kind of one of those things that showing just the personality and the positivity that exuded through Rachel and helped carry me was we used to joke about how in spite of the fact that she really only had three fourths of a brain, she was smarter than 90% of people because she was able to get a teaching degree in middle school math and science, which is not an easy degree. So on the one hand, where you're putting so much energy into actually fighting this condition, you're also trying to get on with what we would call normal life. How important was it that you were able to get back into some sort of normal routine in the midst of this chaos? Oh, it was huge, huge. Without being able to do that, it was not only hurting her with her energy levels and willingness to do a whole lot when we were just sitting around, but for my health as well. I struggle with a lot of physical health issues just with like weight gain and lack of motivation for everything. So being able to get back and start getting back into school, saw a newfound energy in both of us. Within the whole thing, one of the biggest things that drove us was the idea of just trying to enjoy anything we could whenever we could and seeing the positive things, even how small they might be. It was definitely a big push for us. And it was nice that once we moved college and within Moses Lake, we were able to find a really good church for us that helped out in a lot of capacities that included helping get me someone to hang out with her while I would be able to go out and hang out with some of those guys and find some activities to kind of reboot myself for the longest time when she was initially diagnosed, I wouldn't leave her side. And that was another big issue for my health. And so getting kind of some normalcy back was huge in the progress that we were able to make. And it carried over into a lot of miracles that we were able to experience as a result of it. So you're starting to live a more normal life as you continue on. Do your thoughts start to turn towards those initial dreams as this young married couple that are going to, to build a life together and perhaps build a family? They did. Initially on, we were told that there was almost no chance of her having kids prior to her surgery. And they actually told us that, you know, you might want to look at some alternative, maybe freezing of eggs to see if maybe if she gets through this, that you might be able to do the opportunity of having a family. We decided after long conversation that wasn't for us, but being able to get that normalcy back, those dreams definitely started coming back in the picture. We were able to have some deeper conversations with her doctors to the point where she was now mm, two and a half years out of surgery and she had been stable and everything was looking good to the point where we, we did actually ask her doctors, is it possible that with every MRI looking good and stable that we were to try having a family. They kind of did their thing where they explained to us that there were some possible drawbacks to it, but if that's what we wanted, then yeah, their only stipulation for us was that we needed to wait a year after Rachel's last treatment before giving it a try to hopefully allow for any of the chemotherapies 
to work their way through her system. We ended up being blessed almost right away with finding out that we were pregnant with our first son, Michael, who is now nine and healthy and lots of energy and awesome. And then she continued to do well with that. And we were able to enjoy uh, the opportunity of getting pregnant again a couple years later, which was, we were so excited. However, that pregnancy did end up in a miscarriage where that was kind of one of those things where we kind of were wondering, are we going back into more health problems and started kind of back my mind wondering, does this mean the cancer's coming back? She had an MRI not long after that and everything looked good. And before long after that, we found out we were pregnant again and ended up with Camden, who is now six years old and running around driving me crazy. So life does seem to be going in the right direction. But tell me what it's like living with that shadow over you all the time. Because you mentioned there a couple of times you're, you're looking at things saying, oh, is the cancer coming back? Is the cancer coming back? What is it like to try and live a normal life when there's that constant shadow over you? It's hard, hard. And it, it is one of those things that in spite of my bef- best efforts to you know, really be living my goal of focusing in on those good things that happen, you know, and celebrating those little things, there was a hundred percent, I'd be a complete liar if I didn't tell you there was always a part in the back of my mind wondering, is this day going to be the day that something happens? I was felt like I had a microscope that I was watching Rachel and everything she was doing. And, you know, maybe she would trip a little bit or stutter a bit. Cause during this time she was still having forms of seizures where she would get paralysis on her right side and not be able to talk for up to 12 hours at a time. Each time these happened, that anxiety came right back up to the surface, not knowing whether or not it was going to be coming back. And so it was a constant looking over my shoulder and anxiety filled. There's still things to this day that can trigger that for me where it'll flash me back to those times if I hadn't really had a support system that I did where I was able to have a men's small group, it would have been a lot easier for me to fall back into that bigger trap of really being focused only on those possibilities. Is there any way that you can contrast the sorts of things that you were going through as to what Rachel was going through? Because she's battling these health issues. But I guess on the other hand, you can't battle it for her and you're feeling like you just want to get in there and make something happen. What was the difference in the way that you were reacting to what was going on? I think for me to try and compare, it was a lot different. I think going through this for me and Rachel, our religion, our faith in God was always huge, but I think her feelings of being okay with wherever life were to take her in this were way further along than me. And so I definitely was trying to combat that with trying to control everything I could to make it better for her. And at times I became quite overbearing on her to where she would at times just tell me, you need to go, you need to take a break and leave me alone because I was so over the top. And she was in a way at peace with what was going on and where life would go. 
We'd love to say that there's a happy ending to this story that you start to build a family and life just gets better and better and everyone lives happily ever after. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case, was it? No. When Camden was born, everything had looked good. And he was born in 2015. And then in the end of, towards the end of 2016, we started noticing some changes, some little things. And we had just actually gotten Rachel's MRIs switched every six months instead of every three to four months. So we were thinking, oh, everything's going in the right direction. Well, the first MRI at that first six month mark after the doctor said, ooh, there's some stuff that we haven't seen before. There's a new spot. We need to keep an eye on it. Your overall health's quite good still. So we're going to just go back to every, I think it was maybe eight weeks they did that one. And in just that short time span of eight weeks, when we came back, they were like, yeah, it's coming back and we need to get started real quickly or things are going to turn catastrophic in up to a year. We were able to get some special family pictures and try to spend as much time together as possible. However, as 2017 kind of got towards the midpoint, we got to the point where Rachel could no longer walk and had to be in a wheelchair. And we're really starting to think that, you know, we've done everything we can, but it continues to go in a negative direction and to the point where I think it was in about August or September the doctor kind of asked us, you know, Rachel, what's your goal? And kind of going for this as we at that point knew that this was just a matter of time. Treatment decided to be stopped at that point. She looked up, she wasn't able to speak, but she held two fingers up as saying her goal was then to be able to make it to our youngest son's second birthday, which is December 1st. And so we got to Thanksgiving, had all our family from all over come and spend Thanksgiving with us, got to have some great final memories for some of the family members, and then got to celebrate Camden's birthday. She was going downhill, but still able to enjoy that and be able to participate in his birthday celebration. As we got closer and closer to Christmas, she definitely was taking a turn for the worst. And finally, Christmas morning of 2017, while we all ended up with the worst Christmas morning of our lives, she actually ended up with the best Christmas she could ever have waking up next to Jesus on his birthday and celebrating with him. It's such a hard thing to happen, especially when you're this young man with two young children, you're now left on your own. You've mentioned several times the the part that Faith is is playing in this story. What was your interaction with God like at this point? Was, Was it anger? Was it seeking comfort? How did that play out? Initially, I was completely numb. Kind of like you said, I'm a father of two young boys now all of a sudden that really, in spite of your best support system, you feel like you're going to be completely on your own and just completely lost. My faith and relationship with God went through kind of a rough stretch where, you know, I just didn't understand and really struggled with being able to wrap my head around why this would happen when you've got people that don't want to fight. And she wanted to fight as hard as she could because she had so much to live for. I tried going through 
a grief share group through my church, our church in Moses Lake, and went through parts of it and felt like there was some benefit to it, but it wasn't necessarily fitting what I needed. So it was nice that I was able to get back to hosting the men's group that I had and really able to open up about the struggles and some of the conversations that we were able to have really did a lot for my faith in the time and my relationship with God. One of the biggest things that stuck out was a conversation about whether or not it was okay to like question God and his plan. And it was really interesting to hear people's perspectives and really kind of come to the understanding that, you know, I firmly believe that God is larger than anything that we can be thrown at. And he's big enough to be able to have us question because he gave us that capacity to do it. At that point, once I kind of realized that my faith and relationship with God really started moving back in the positive direction and just kind of led to a lot of positive things happening in spite of that struggle going on at the time. At what point did you decide that you needed to start writing down some of this experience and writing your book? Because it's not a traditional, here's my story. It's actually got links to, to baseball and and links to, to biblical themes. Tell me about the book and, and what made you decide to start writing it? Way back at the very beginning, I was shared a website called Caring Bridge, which is an opportunity. It's kind of like a Facebook book for people to be able to share what's going on in a family member's battle with illnesses or struggles. I was doing updates every few days and really started to find a piece in it. It was something very surprising to me because I was, I, I'll be, I was always the first one to say I was a horrible writer in school and didn't think writing was ever something I liked. I did enough to get by in school. But the writing seemed to really hit home for me as we were kind of early on and I was sharing the information with our family and friends. Within the first eight months of Rachel's uh, initial surgery, I did actually publish a different book that I self-published of kind of what you were saying, the story of just here's what's kind of going on. From there, I just started realizing that writing was good for me. I started looking for books that would help guide me and kind of that I could connect with as being the spouse of someone going through cancer and difficult times. And I couldn't find it. I could find things that would work for a patient or after someone had passed away, but couldn't really find anything I connected with going through it. And finally, towards the end, uh, probably about the last year of Rachel's life, I had started kind of pinning this idea and it was kind of interesting that I started off the right off the bat. The title was what popped into my head. I didn't know where this story was going to go or what it was going to include, but I just knew that this idea of defeating the unbeatable where death being the unbeatable, yet you can still beat it in how you live your life was like, that's what I got to write about. From there, I started just having chapter by chapter, I started writing things no clue on the order that they were going to go in. I just knew that my faith was huge in this. So I wanted to include that and make those biblical references, but also baseball. I grew up playing baseball my whole life, helped pay for part of my college. I mean, it was a huge part of my life. And I was like, I can make connections between this whole walk and a baseball career. Just seeing how each chapter I was able to connect a biblical story with it just made it even that more powerful for me and became a very big therapy for me as I walked through the various struggles. 
I took a break from writing probably the last couple months of Rachel's life and really struggled getting back to it. About nine, 10 months after Rachel passed away, I actually was introduced by a fellow uh, widower to a lady named Tasha, who is actually now my wife. And she very early on knew my whole story of what was going on and knew that I had this book going and she became my biggest supporter in pushing this and getting back to writing it in spite of me kind of at times feeling like, well, this is, this is my story, but I'm now working on this new story and trying to figure out how to connect it. And through her pushing, it led me to finally getting the book finished and working on getting it published. You mentioned there that you met this lovely young lady who has now become your wife. How important was that in your healing? It it was huge because I've always been a people person. Having the relationships that I had with all our family and still do with all our family was fantastic. But Rachel and I, prior to her passing, had had a lot of conversations about what did she want my future to be like and what did she want for the boys. And she was always very honest with me of that she wanted me to remarry and that she wanted the boys to have a mom that is there to be able to talk through with them, not to ever replace her or be a substitute, but to continue that mom in the boys' lives. And for me, for a long time, it was a struggle. I couldn't bear to imagine it. I really wasn't even looking for a relationship at the time, but it was just one of those things where we started having some conversations at be through this friend and got to talk about a lot of things. We actually didn't officially meet for over a month. We were just talking through text and video chatting and we're able to have some really deep conversations that I think did a lot to guide what kind of how life moved forward from there. Now the book has been released. People have had the opportunity to read it, to hear some of your story, but also to be able to reflect on the things that they're going through. And that's the purpose behind the book, to help people as as they're going through certain circumstances. What has been the response from those who've had the opportunity to read the book? Uh, it's been very interesting in variety of capacities because I wrote it mainly at the time for those going through cancer. However, I've had conversations with a lot of people that have been able to apply it to other parts of their lives. Maybe they were struggling a little bit with their core group of people and who they need in their lives and kind of getting to see that I want to have this core team that has its specific purposes in my life, just like the chapter that I write about, just how your team goes together. And I think it's also been nice to hear from people that say, you know, I've went through this or, you know, I've never been through this, but there's some things that now I can keep in the back of my mind for preparing in a way if I go through anything that's hard, kind of like this, which I mean, we're all going to go through hard things in different capacities and just being able to pull things away from it that are applicable to them in spite of not having the same situation happen to them. If you had the opportunity to speak to people who are going through difficult times at the moment, what's the main encouragement that you would pass on to them? The main encouragement that I'd pass on to them is to really 
in spite of how hard the situation might be, and this is something that I struggled with even for myself, trying to find any little thing that you can be happy about to celebrate in those moments. For me, it was sometimes just driving in the car and listening to a song and singing it out loud. Or even when she was in the hospital, looking out the window and just appreciating the sun coming up or playing a card game. Just find little things that you can celebrate and hold on to those because those are going to be the things that are going to help you get through those hard times instead of waiting for that big moment that you then all of a sudden are at the end and realize, man, I missed out on a lot of little things. So really try to appreciate those little moments that you're getting. Craig, you're at several years past the time that you lost Rachel. You now have a wonderful wife. You've got your two boys. But is the grieving process still continuing for you? Uh, definitely. In different capacities, it ebbs and flows where, you know, there's little things that you still see that it's like, oh, yeah, Rachel appreciated that, or that was something that Rachel really enjoyed. But I say it in a different way than I did when she initially passed away. There's not really necessarily that sadness is more of a, a celebration that I got to experience those times with her, and she was able to have those almost 10 years of battling cancer when she was only given 18 months. I mean, that for me has been something that's always pushed me in a positive way. The What I'm now kind of going through is more with just our boys and them getting to that age now where they're recognizing some things that maybe other family member, we have other family members or friends that pass away and she, the boys will kind of just kind of be re-reminded of Rachel's passing and it kind of puts us back to where we have to kind of work through some of that stuff. So I think the grieving process in different capacities kind of is ongoing, but the way I think about the things has changed to more of a looking at the positives versus that necessarily the negatives of going through those experiences. Craig, if people want to get in touch with you or to find the book, where's the easiest place for them to go? I've got a website, which is nice because it comes directly from me and I can send them signed copies of the book as well as a connect section. It's Craigery19, so that's C-R-A-I-G-O-R-Y-1-9 dot wixsite.com forward slash defeat. That's my book specific website. I am on Facebook at Defeating the Unbeatable. And then I've also just recently started a weekly kind of short inspirational uh, video series called Defeating Weekly, which is on YouTube. So any of those places people can always check out and get in touch with me. I'm very much active in those and keeping a close eye on them. So I'm always willing to talk to people and get their thoughts on the book as well as just share and have conversations with people. I really enjoy having conversations with people. And I'll put the links to all those places, to the, the website, to the Facebook and the like, to I'll put them in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so it'll make it easy for you to grab them. Craig, it's been great to hear your story and to be able to, to walk through that with you. Thanks for the book that you've written because I know it's going to help so many other people. But thank you for your time today on Bleeding Daylight. Thank you, Rodney, as well. I appreciate it. 
Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.